Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight, even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Have you ever been in a crack addict's home where they lay their head at night? Imagine a child growing up in the crack addict's home. Crack addict's home looks like hoarders. Garbage is everywhere, you know, it's never been cleaned, so the floors that were once white are black. You know, now imagine a kid having to get up and go to school. We all screwed up, Mm -hmm. right? We all didn't show up one time or another in life. And we get lots of chances. Absolutely. Like, if you're privileged, you get actually as many chances as you need until you succeed, Mm -hmm. until you get it. And if you're growing up a kid of color in a poor community, it's like one and done. Today we're going to be talking about investing in youth as the key to our future. And one of the things that I've seen so much in our work at Share Our Strength is that we've got a big gap that exists between what we know is important to do and what we should be doing uh, in terms of the outcomes that we get for young people. We're here with two terrific people to have that conversation. One is a young and up-and-coming chef about to open a restaurant in Washington, D.C. named Kwame Anwachi, and he's just achieved an incredible amount in a very short time, and he's already found ways to give back to the community through Share Our Strength and other work that he's doing. And our other guest, a longtime buddy of mine, John Gompertz, is the president and the CEO of America's (laughs) Promise Alliance. I'm going to ask each of you just to say a little bit about how you got to where you are today, just a little bit about your background so we understand who you are and and what you're doing. Kwame, let's start with you. You know, I I grew up in the Bronx um, in a one-bedroom apartment with my mom. Um, She was an accountant, and she needed to figure a way out uh, how to provide for us um, and spend time with us. So she started a catering company, and that's how I really started uh, getting into food. You know, that's where I got my passion from and my drive, and, you know, my first chores were you know, peeling shrimp and cutting vegetables and stirring sauces. <laughs> Those, at, at what age? At uh, about six years old. At six years old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, my mom would always make this gumbo for her clients, and we had to always take turns stirring the roux. That's, like, one of the things I always remember. Um, later on, you know, I, I spent some time in Nigeria. I um, was kind of veering off on the wrong path, um, and my mom wanted to nip that in the bud at an early age, so she sent me to Nigeria to live for two years. Um, because you had family there? I had family. My grandfather um, lives in Nigeria. Um, so that kind of changed me and shaped me you know, into the man that I am today. After that, I you know, started cooking, came back and went to college for business administration, dropped out because I, I hated it. I hate sitting in the classroom, but I like to work with my hands because you know, that's what I did since I was six, pretty much. And I started cooking, and I started working in restaurants and more restaurants, and you know, one thing led to the other, and, you know, here I am today because someone invested in the youth. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's the elevator pitch story of, of my life. Well, I'm going to come back. I want to talk about in a moment about the Nigerian years and the, what were what was formative about that experience, since okay. it, it so clearly was. And John Gompertz, I, I know that you dine well. I don't know that you cook well. I'd rather Kwame <laughs> cook for me. Definitely. Uh, but, Definitely uh, want that. But, but you've really, you have devoted your entire life. I think we met probably back as far as 1996, if not earlier. You were instrumental in pulling all of the living presidents at the time together 
to have a summit about um, the needs of young people. Yeah. And uh, you've been working on this ever since. So tell us more. Well, um, I've been lucky enough for the last um, 20, 30 years to be working in various different ways to try to create more opportunity for young people, whether it's using national service, AmeriCorps-style service, or Peace Corps-style service to engage young people, or through America's Promise, bring organizations and communities together to try to create the conditions that young people need to succeed. Because what we know is going on is that a lot of the young people, and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, are just growing up in circumstances where the challenges are much greater than the supports they have. And when you look at some how some people grow up, you think it's a miracle, really, that any of these kids graduate from school, um, move forward into jobs or into college. And we need to do better as a society and as individuals around those issues. It's it, What happens in some communities in the country now is is appalling. So whether it's schools that aren't any good, no access to health care, no quality food, food deserts. Yeah. Um, but that's what I was going to say, Kwame, and you, as, a, as a restaurateur and a culinary person, you've seen this as well. We work in so many communities that share our strength where people who want to buy healthy and nutritious food just don't have that option. Those, those yeah, venues don't deserts, exist there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's unfortunate. You know, there needs to be a change. I just I had like a flashback of my friend when I was younger telling me he would never amount to anything because what's out there for me? You know what I mean? And, you know, I remember going to his house. You know, he lived in the projects. My mom, we lived around the corner from the projects. So I would go in there and like the house is like a sh- like a shamble. Like there's things everywhere. It looks like those, um, those hoarding um, yeah. shows, you know. And, you know, I would make fun of him about it. But, you know, now as an adult, it's like how can a kid – like progress if you're raised in an environment like that. I can't even think if my room is dirty. You right. know, I can't think right. if my house is dirty. When I when I start getting overwhelmed, I'll clean my whole house, you know, and right. that clears my head. And my parents would tell me that when I was younger, like clean your room, you'll feel better. I can only imagine growing up in where your home is a shamble that if you know your home is your safe place as a child. Right. So, you know, it's things like that that a lot of people don't even know goes on behind those doors you know they don't know that you know their father may be addicted to crack cocaine and their mother is just trying to hold it all together and you know the kid is like why do i why should i go to school when i can sell drugs and make some money so i can eat you know and these are the things that are like very very pressing and i i don't have an answer of of how to how to change that but i think awareness it it makes people sympathize a little more and not and not judge and just you know throw statistics out there Yeah, so it's been it's been 20 years now since General Powell, Colin Powell, got together the five living presidents at the time to really be the catalyst for America's Promise Alliance. Tell us who those were and how that happened. Sure. So um, the the idea actually started from the first Governor Romney, uh, George Romney, mm-hmm. Mitt Romney's dad, who said we should bring together all the presidents to uh, make a big commitment to kids. And to our own responsibility as citizens, each individual and each organization. I come from Silicon Valley, where the famous startup story is two guys in a garage, right? America's Promise has the exact opposite startup story. Five former presidents or living, all all the living presidents together in Philadelphia for three days to dedicate themselves to 
this proposition that we need to make a higher priority out of what's going on with young people. This is what the nation owes young people. This is what we have to come together to do to create these conditions for success for young people. One of the things I've heard you say that uh, really kind of stopped me in my tracks was that 4,000 American kids drop out of school a day on, on, on average. Uh, that's just a that's just a shocking number. It's, and what, so say more about what's going on there. So for the last 10 years or so, we've been focused on a campaign called Grad Nation to increase high school graduation rates. And as, as recently as 2005, you could look and see that only 7 in 10 kids were graduating from high school in the 21st century. Uh, and for kids of color... It was a half-half. It was kind of a toss-up. 50, 50% graduation rate. Yeah. And we know what the economy looks like. We know what the job market looks like. If you don't graduate from high school, there aren't a lot of things that you're going to no. be able to do in today's world, right? So we thought it was a great focus for a campaign because you don't have to describe to anybody what high school graduation is. Universally understood. It's externally measured every single year, Right. And it, it actually matters that w what your opportunities look like, what your income looks like. The Centers for Disease Control now says what your longevity, your health and longevity look like are all determined by whether you graduate from high school or not. So we started to focus on that and to work with organizations and communities to use that as a driver for more energy, more resources, more focus, more talent working with, to find the ways that we could help more young people graduate from high school. And the good news story on it is that over the last decade, an additional 2 million kids graduated from high school on time, in part because of this campaign. And, and the dropout rate is actually it, it, is the decreasing, out, right, the, which is kind school, of an incredible success story in this day and age when so many social problems seem to be getting worse. It's one of the things that I, I one of the reasons I like to talk about this issue is that we feel so stuck, like nothing gets better, right? Well, that's wrong. High school graduation has increased by more than 10% in just a decade. And as I said, an additional 2 million young people mm -hmm. graduated from high school. That doesn't mean that all of those kids are necessarily on track to success. We know that high school graduation is not the finish line. But we know that not graduating from high yeah, school better than nothing. is <laughs> It, right. It, you're almost consigned to failure. Yeah. So I have a question. Because um, now that I think about it, I, I never really even thought about the high school dropout rate. Um, all of my friends that didn't go to the high school with me, that lived in my area, didn't graduate from high school. This um, is in the Bronx? In the Bronx, yeah. Okay, but we have to get – General Powell grew up in the Bronx too, so you got to be more specific. In the South Bronx. Okay. Yeah, and Webster Avenue. You know, the South Bronx is definitely um, – people refer to it as like a third world country, like of America, in a sense, you know. We have all these public housing, but it it really just it really just breeds failure. It's it's a it's rough, you know, thinking about that because it's rough to go back. You know, I don't really yeah. go back often, um, and it just reminds me of extreme poverty. You know, I remember doing a a visit in a school in the South Bronx and coming through, you know, like Webster Avenue type neighborhoods, and arrive at the school, and it made me think like. We we all believe in education and how mm -hmm. education can create opportunity for young people. But are we being realistic? If you see where these young people are growing up, 
kind of chaos <laughs> and violence yeah. and trauma and stress that exists. It's more and than then, education that they need. Uh, right. Like to to think that a even a wonderful teacher with a marvelous curriculum is going to be able to compete with all that. It's just not being realistic. It's it's magical thinking. So we need a response to these challenges that is much larger than just schools. And then what we do is the schools, not surprisingly, don't succeed mm-hmm. in helping all those kids. And then we blame the schools yeah. and we blame the teachers. And they say, we say, oh, you're not meeting your metrics. And we just got to be more serious, more resolute. Uh, and more real about what's going on for those young people mm-hmm. and meet basic needs like food, like safety, Yeah, right? If, yeah. if you don't feel safe, how, how are you going to connect with people? Yeah, for me, it's like it, it's funny that the thing that I think of when people are, um, you know, because a lot of people, you know, they like to judge and like to say that, you know, people are doing it to themselves and public assistance and everything. I, I always like to ask people, like, have you ever been in a crack addict's home? You know, like, have you ever been inside a crack addict's home? Like, where they lay their head at night. Could you imagine? And I've been in a crack addict's home because that's where we can do anything. We can go there. You know, we can smoke cigarettes and right. stuff. Imagine a child growing up in the crack addict's home. Crack addict's home looks like hoarders. Yep. Looks, there's things everywhere, things that they can sell garbage is everywhere you know it's never been clean so the floors were that were once white are black you know now imagine a kid having to get up and go to school you know imagine a kid having to go and ask his parents for advice how's that gonna work how does that work (laughs) you're not talking about the the kid who's visited a crack addict's home you're talking about the kid who grew up there yeah yeah exactly right so you know so I, i think about your your mom sending you to nigeria pretty radical step pretty far but you're also talking about young people who have no sense of hope there's so many people who grow up in communities like the south bronx who've never actually been any place else like how would oh, they yeah. have any sense kids who grow up in uh, across the river here in dc that have never seen the right. washington monument mm-hmm. like how is that possible yeah. but how could we imagine that those young people have an idea of what they could become, where they could live, what you, they could do. You can't even identify with them. You, it, it's like <laughs> that world's not for you me, know? right? No. Yeah. When I was growing up, that friend that I mentioned that said, I'll never amount to anything. Yeah. Know, his words were, nev- I'm never going to be shit because I grew up in shit. And I was just like, by Sean, you're, you're, you're better than that, you know? And I was in a point where I was, I always worked, you know, like my first job was at McDonald's when I was 15 years old, you know, because I wanted to have the best sneakers and I wanted to be the most popular kid, you know, but I, I still had goals at that age. So I, one of my first like cooking jobs was at Calexico. It was this uh, taco stand in Soho. Um, and it was like a really popular taco stand. They'd be like two hour wait for a taco. Um, but the, the I uh, answered to a Craigslist ad and the owner, I worked with alongside with the owners. It was two brothers from California that missed tacos. So they opened up this truck, me and a grill guy. Um, so it was the four of us cooking on this truck, and he was like, "Wow, you're you're really good. Do you have any other friends that may want to work?" Um, and I was like, "Yeah, I have the exact friend by Sean, you know." And I, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, you need to be here. You're gonna work at the prep kitchen while we cook, you know. Here's a map. Here's exactly where you need to get off. You can take the R train to Astoria, Ditmars, you know, and get off and walk down this block and walk down here." And he's like, "All right, cool. Thank you so much for the opportunity." 
And I get to work, and they're like, where's your friend at? And I was like, I, I wrote him a map and everything. Yeah. And I go back home afterward, and he's just hanging out on the block. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, you're making me look bad. He was like, what do you mean? I, I, I got on the train, and then I forgot what you said. And I, I'd never been on the R train, and so I just came back home. Yeah. You never know, been on the R train. Never been on the R train. You know, he grew up in New York City. Yeah, never been on the R train because yeah. he's he's no. only taken the the five right. train. Just to push it mm -hmm. a, a little bit further, so we all screwed up, mm -hmm. right? We all didn't show up one time or another in life, and we get lots of chances. Absolutely, like if you're privileged, you get actually as many chances as you need until yeah. you until succeed. You it. Mm -hmm. Until you get it, and if you're growing up a kid of color in a poor community, it's like one and done. And everybody is happy to judge you. Well, oh. They forget everything <laughs> they ever did wrong in their lives. Kid didn't show. A kid got a job and didn't show up. Yeah. Obviously, you know we can't help them. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? And, now. and you you get the second and the third and the fourth chance because you've got an advocate insisting that you do. Right? Exactly. And if mm -hmm. you don't, if you exactly. don't. So I have a question. Because um, now that I think about it, I, I never really even thought about the high school dropout rate. Um, I want to know what what does your what do you all do to help prevent that? So, or, or, you know, help encourage kids to graduate. So there are, in my view, there are probably four things that have driven the progress on high school graduation rate. And I think some of these will be very familiar to you, Billy. First is just focus. Like, we started out by just ringing the alarm bell. Did you know that only half the kids of color in America are graduating from high school? We got people focused on that issue. That's number one. Number two is that more and more data has become available, so it's much clearer where the challenges are, which kids aren't graduating, and that allows people to sort of design um, interventions. Number three is we have to be real. I'd love to hear from you why kids weren't graduating from high school, but we, we can't imagine why they're not graduating from high school. We can't have adult ideas about why they're, we need to ask young people, what happened? I mean, nobody goes to school yeah. with the intent of not graduating. And then the fourth thing I would say is you got to stick with it. You got to persist. There's a, you know, if there was such a thing as a pill you could swallow and then all the kids would graduate from high school, it's a hard problem, uh, a wicked problem, people call it. And Billy, you're working on a, a similar problem. It takes a long time. You got to work at it really hard, yeah, and so communities really have to stick with well, it. I definitely think it's a little. It's a lack of mentorship. You know, uh, the, the kids that I know that didn't graduate, their parents were pretty much non-existent in their lives. Yeah. You know, the parents fed them, put clothes on their back. Yeah. Outside of that, they really weren't parenting. You know, so they were more so of guardians than anything. Um, so in our set, and Billy will remember this from our founding, in our set of promises, the mm -hmm. things that we say that all young people need in order to succeed, the number one thing is caring adults in their lives. Yeah. Um, um, and Positive to, role models. Positive role models. You know, what did, what did my friends want to um, aspire to be? They wanted to aspire to be the drug dealers on the streets because that was so close and tangible for them to see success. So right. instead of going to school, they can stay on the block and hustle and make money. Make money. And yeah. why would you go to school if I can already make money right now? Isn't that the point of going to school? So exactly. Those are the things that you know that I saw. That was a, you know a direct reason of why they dropped out. And I didn't have an answer for them. You know, I was we were the same age. Right. I just knew that my parents were like, "You better go to school." 
Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and it's traditionally a time of gratitude and reflection, and one in which many of us ask ourselves how we can be helping others in our community. At Share Our Strength, we've come up with a very simple but fun way for you to get involved. It's called Friendsgiving. To find out all the steps for success in hosting a Friendsgiving party, go to nokidhungry.org. And just imagine being at Thanksgiving dinner while kids in our country are thanking you. One of the things that we're finding is that everybody talks about how inequality gets worse as you know kids kind of go through the school system and as they get older and so forth. But we're finding that inequality actually begins in preschool now because there's a set of families who are able to give their kids everything they need to succeed. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody thought kind of universal preschool was going to be an answer to this problem, but it actually, inequality is baked into that. And when you think about what a caring adult, what a parent does for the kids, I've got a, I've got a child in fifth grade and he was struggling in math. And so we had a meeting with his math teacher, his tutor, the math specialist, and the head of the math department at his school and his mom and me, my wife and I. Okay, so we're all sitting there mapping out his future, <laughs> mm-hmm. as if we're planning a, you know, almost like you know, with you know, an yeah. invasion of another country. It was that level of detail? Like, that's how you know, important it should be. That's how that's important so it should life, be. So how know? many? So like, I have to take an afternoon off from work to do it. Mm-hmm. Who, who's in a position to do that? Not everybody. Um, and you know, we set a date to reconvene. So when you think about kids going through this without champions, without advocates, how do they possibly do it? Now you had a mom that you said. She thought you needed to go to Nigeria. Yeah, so I grew up in the South Bronx, you know, so I was veering off from the wrong path, which is very easy to do. As much as playing outside, you know, just from what you see, you become a product of your environment. And she saw that I was, that was happening, you know, very quickly. And I wasn't, you know, doing any criminal activity at this young age. I was nine years old, but I was insubordinate, you know, in in school and at home. And you couldn't tell me anything. I was too smart for my own good. I was in the gifted program. So, you know, um, I, I just, she can tell that I was projecting off in the wrong path. So she was like, all right, well, you're going to go spend the summer with your grandfather in Nigeria. And I was like, all right, this is awesome. I get a trip to Africa, you know? <laughs> and then when I'm there, um, it's like September, and that's when school starts in New York. And I'm like, no, like, school's about to start. I got to come back. And she was like, and you're not coming back until you learn respect. So it was two years later, two years I had to spend there until. Uh, and, and she figured I was ready to come back. And what happened there for you that that made a difference in terms of some of these kind of character traits um, that we're talking about? You know, about? It's, it's, it's things that I didn't even notice at the time. You know, it's things like, you know, I, I was playing PlayStation, you know, the day before, and then I get to Nigeria and I'm doing homework by kerosene lamplight, you know, uh, I can run my bath water for an hour while SpongeBob was on and then jump in the bath whenever I wanted to. But in Africa, I had to go and fetch my water and bathe with a cup in a bucket, you know. Um, if we wanted cooking oil, we had to pick the palm kernels from the tree and bang them and mash them in a mortar and pestle and strain them to get oil to cook with. It's funny enough, it kind of expanded. Um, it made me more adventurous when I, um, when I got to Nigeria. I'll never forget this. It was like the first day, sat down, it was dinner time. And my father cooked a lot of Nigerian food, so I was excited to, to eat it. Um, and it was a bowl of pounded yam. So they take this, this yam, it's very um, similar to cassava, and they pound it in a mortar and pestle. Now, a giant mortar and pestle that sits between your legs with a little bit of water that activates, like, the gluten and things like that. So it's like um, it turns into sort of like a soft dough almost mm-hmm. that you can pull off and dip it into sauces and eat. That's, that's your vessel for eating. 
So we get that. I'm like excited about the pounded yam. Mind you, I've only had powdered pounded yam in America because we no one is being a giant mortar and pestle and doing anything, you know. And my father's food is bastardized, like Nigerian food. So we're there, and my grandma's like, we're having okra soup. And I'm like, I love okra. This is awesome, you know. And she puts the okra soup on my plate and lifts the spoon up, and there's a string of, like, goo all the way from the spoon to the plate. And I was just like, I'm not eating that. (laughs) You you couldn't even pay me to eat this. So I went to a little corner store around there or whatever and got peanuts, like a dollar worth of peanuts, which was, like, five pounds of peanuts. (laughs) And I ate that for, like, a month. I didn't eat it all until one day. It just started to smell good. (laughs) And I ate it, and I really enjoyed it. But with that being said, you know, it made me more adventurous with food, but also the process that went into cooking. You know, like I said, we had to pick this uh, vegetable out of this tuber out of the ground, you know, boil it, pound it, and eat it. Cooking is a whole day process. You knew where your food came from. Yeah, we had to raise my chickens. You know, I would name them, incubate them, like... Um, let them sleep near me or, or buy a, a hot jar so they wouldn't die overnight. And then, you know, they would get older and I would play with them until my grandfather said we had to kill the white one. And I'm like, the white one? That's James. What do you mean? We're not killing James. And then he would make me kill it so I would understand, you know, where my food came from. Wow. You know, so it, it gave me a, a huge appreciation for for food, for cuisine, where it comes from, you know, food waste, um, all of that. It was these things when I was younger, I'm just like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing? You know, I want to go back to America. But as an adult, you know, the small things that I see, um, it just makes me appreciate more things um, on a day to day basis because of those those small things that happened to me or big things that happened to me in Nigeria. So I don't know what your folks said to you when you were insubordinate, Billy, or maybe you were always an angel. Um, but when we were insubordinate, we got threatened with military school, of course. Yeah, I right? got threatened in military school. We never got threatened with Nigeria, though. That was not on the it map. Was, it was military school or Nigeria. My mom couldn't afford military school. So she sent me. She just saved up four tickets to Nigeria. And then I was one way home. ticket. One way ticket. <laughs> well, she'd figure it out. Well, and, and, and what was the influence? And it was... Primarily your mom in terms of you becoming a chef? So my mom, like I said, she was a catering chef that operated her, her business from the house. And, you know, I became like her first employee at a very young age. Um, but, you know, after I came back from Africa, I went to school, went to college, I dropped out. My mom moved to New Orleans once I graduated from high school. So I moved down there because that's where she was at. And I started working in restaurants, the only thing I really knew how to do. Till I was like, I'll figure out where I want to be. I was like 19. But this is what I can do. I need to get a job, you know. So I started working in restaurants, waiting tables, fry cook, you know, the whole gamut of restaurants I worked in. And then the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So they were paying, like, ridiculous amounts of money, like, for us to go out there and cook for, like, these pirates, you know, cleaning up the oil. Like, $2,200, like, a, a week. So I was 19. I was like, I win in this situation. If I go out oh. there for one week and I get fired, I win. So, like, I'm going to go. I'm going to test this out. It's not going to work out. And I went out there, and we had to cook for, like, 40 people, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. These guys that were just working to the bone, like, sucking the, the sludge off of the, you know, the top of the ocean. I really enjoyed it. Within a month, I became the head chef of the boat because I just took these things that my mother taught me and started cooking them. And then they just promoted me to that and got rid of the other chef because that's it's just so cutthroat there. They're like, oh, you cook better? He's gone. And so. I've, I've always <laughs> thought of the restaurant industry, and we've kind of seen this through our work at Share of Strength. 
as a place that does create a, a lot of opportunity for people who haven't taken traditional paths. Oh yeah. So and yeah. that's that's if a, you're talented at it, you can. If you're talented and you're persistent, right? You yeah. can do that, and you're going to be in a position to create opportunity probably for other young Absolutely. people. Absolutely. You've got a restaurant the opening Shaw, yep. soon. The Shaw Bijou is opening in uh, Washington D.C., and we're we're close. So. Yeah, it's a small, like, 28-seat restaurant, more on the fine dining side of things, like 17 courses. So it's, uh, it's an experience. It's an experience. So we're inviting 17 you into 17 courses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to cook them all. I will have help, a little bit of help. <laughs> Your mom? Uh, my mom will absolutely not be helping. Me, <laughs> uh, but I have, a, I have a team of, like, 12 cooks um, that will be helping me execute this menu. So Wow. Uh, John, as we wrap up, tell us what you're doing to get the word out about this very exciting, as you described at the beginning, something that's actually working. We're reducing dropout rates. That changes a young person's life. It changes their family. It changes the community. can change the country. I know you publish a lot. You speak a lot. What's your strategy for, for getting word out on this? Yeah, I mean, I do all those things and and more. And it's it's hard. It's hard. I, I think you know the same thing. It's hard to get out a good news story. It's hard to find any mind share and energy and time for this. Yet, when you crack through, and when you find other champions, as you've done so brilliantly, um, the message can really get amplified. Thank you. Well, I'm here with Kwame Anwachi. Um, <laughs> good up job. And coming. Thank you. <laughs> we practiced that one. Uh, Kwame Anwachi, up and coming chef, about to open up in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Uh, and John Gompert, CEO of America's Promise Alliance. Both of you, in your own ways, uh, really making a difference for young people in this country. Thanks Thank for being you. here. Thanks for being with Share Your Strength. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to Thanks. be here. Thank great you. Great conversation, guys. I hope you'll go to our website, slash passion to discover how you can get involved to make a difference in your community. Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive, our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm your host, Billy Shore.